and also like there's a bunch of like American ultra leftist types basically have like spent the last few weeks uh, trying to like prove that this is this uh, protest movement is incurably racist and uh, just to prove a point about Mar- about when you see white people in the streets. <laughs> it's it, that, that that racism thing is just so interesting though because it's like there is a there is a new uh, popular movement of the people the people in France is conservative and racist so obviously there is going to be racism and homophobia and other things in that uh, in that movement and for the first time that really really fascinates the media who usually yeah, yeah. never never ever talk about it but what is even more i don't know puzzling for me is the fact that now in Paris, I'm really, really struggling to convince my my comrades <laughs> that we need to, you know, we, we need to be with the religion. And many of them, they 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 tell me, yeah, but listen, there was point twenty nine and point thirty of the people's uh, directives that were not great on migration. I think they're quite reactionary on this. And I was like, okay, but. The committee, yes, it's not perfect. And yes, we don't agree with all of the, the people's directives, that's for sure. But the, the Comité Justice pour, pour Adama, which is one of the main forces of the anti-racist, decolonial left in France today, is joining and is really voicing very much its support for the movement. And we, the white left, are going to say, no, let's wait and see if they clarify that point 29 in the people. Yeah, and and that guarantees that it goes over to the right. Yeah, exactly. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Well, mass, angry, leaderless protest movements that reject traditional parties of the left and the right. This is what we're seeing in France with the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vest, protests. That Macron was unpopular, we knew. That France was dissatisfied with the way things were heading, we also knew. But that there was this profound exasperation, we maybe did not. It's caught France by surprise, and the Gilets Jaunes movement only seems to grow. The violence on the streets of Paris last Saturday, the 2nd of December, made global headlines. Macron since rolled back on the fuel tax that kicked off the protests in the first place. But as we'll learn, there's a lot more to the Gilets Jaunes than that. So to talk us all through this, we're really happy to have Aurélie Dianara join us. Aurélie is a research associate in international economic history at the University of Glasgow and a feminist activist who sits on the National Committee of Potere al Popolo in Italy. She's the author of an article that came out in Jacobin last week called We're With the Rebels, which, for my money, is one of the best things written in English so far on the Yellow Vests. How far will this inchoate protest movement go? Is Macron's government at risk? Might even the Fifth Republic be at stake? All of this right now. Welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm joined by Ben Fogel, who's in New York right now. Hi, Ben. Hey. And we are very happy to welcome Aurélie Dianara uh, to talk about the Gilets Jaunes. So let's get cracking. This is a very fast-moving development, which is expanding day by day. A lot of this is provisional, but at the same time, we're going to try to draw out as much as we can and uh, see what we can learn from this. The protest started in the middle of November, and it started in reaction to a carbon tax on petrol and diesel, but it's, as everyone knows, has expanded well beyond that. 
But I think it's probably best if we begin at the beginning. So, Aurélie, what are the Gilets Jaunes' demands, at least in their kernel from the start? Is it a consumer or a tax protest? Would you characterize it like that? Uh, right from the start, or initially, the Gilets Jaunes are people that no one had ever seen mobilizing before, people who decided to mobilize uh, at the beginning of November um, because, uh, because of the increase in uh, fuel prices. Um, basically, the initial the initial uh, reason why they started to organize is because uh, the prices of both diesel and petrol have been increasing a lot this year in France because of the general increase in the price of the oil barrel, but also because uh, at a few weeks before the movement started, uh, the French government uh, announced that there would be a new increase in uh, in fuel prices by January first. Uh, 2019, uh, which they presented as a carbon tax that was supposed to uh, partly uh, finance a sort of uh, uh, ecologically oriented uh, energy transition. Obviously, this this uh, this news was taken pretty badly by uh, a part of the France that uh, has to um, make a lot of uh, that live mainly in the in the rural and in the peripheral uh, areas of France and small towns and uh, rural areas and that has to use their car a lot to make a lot of kilometers every day and on which uh, basically uh, fuel prices cut a lot into their incomes so that was the initial uh, reason why the gilets jaunes started to organize they started to organize on social media uh, on Facebook uh, and on, on other media, and they uh, decided to to wear this, uh, this this yellow vest, this fluorescent yellow vest. And so they decided that they are going to they were going to make themselves visible by wearing this uh, this uh, vest and by blocking roads. Basically, they organized uh, uh, roadblocks uh, everywhere in France, thousands of roadblocks on the 17th of November. And so I guess you could say that uh, in initially in the first phase it was a uh, tax protest uh, um, against the, this increase in fuel, but then very, very quickly it became something else. I guess this something else is something we're going <laughs> to explore. Now. Indeed. Um, I think the interesting thing is that some of the commentary, because the demands were initially framed around tax, treated them as a sort of uh, conservative movement, a sort of petty bourgeois conservative rural movement, which just didn't want to be taxed as much. But if you actually look at their demands, it seems to be more progressive than that. It, they really say tax the rich instead, stop taxing the small guy. I think maybe it might be worth considering this in the context of Macron's changes to tax law, which have really been upwardly redistributive. So the the way he abolished the wealth tax, for example, right? Yes, absolutely. So what appeared quite quickly uh, since the 17th of November, when all the journalists, all the media were basically going everywhere to interview those mysterious uh, yellow vests, the gilets jaunes, to understand what did they want and how did they think and uh, who were they, you know, uh, it was uh, it was the question that everybody was uh, was uh, was asking themselves. And so uh, everybody, all the, the, these uh, gilets jaunes were saying something that was quite striking. It was that it wasn't just about the increase in fuel price and that the increase in fuel price was, uh, in French, la goutte d'eau qui fait déborder le vase, which means, uh, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, apparently. Uh, and that actually, it was a much more profound sense of exasperation and despair and anger against 
a series of uh, policies, fiscal and social policies, that have been implemented by uh, Macron's government, the current uh, government, but also by uh, previous governments, and that have basically had, uh, as a result, the outcome of these policies have, have been to, to increase the largest fortunes in France and to really uh, decrease the living conditions and the incomes of uh, the popular classes and the middle classes in France. Um, just to uh, expand on this, in terms of another framing of these protests, there's a question of regional inequality. It tends to be, uh, normally when people think of inequality these days, particularly in advanced capitalist countries, they think of the sort of periphery of cities and the center of cities. But this is, seems to be illustrating a sort of rural and urban divide with Macron symbolizing urban France and these guys being the forgotten guys of rural France. Can you expand a bit on that? Yes, so it seems, I mean, I guess sociologists will tell us more in the next uh, months and years about exactly where uh, the, the yellow vests come from. But it seems that, that they come mainly from the rural uh, areas and from basically the uh, small towns, um, not so much from the peripheries of large towns, but from the small towns where a lot of people also have been uh, forced to 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 go back in the past years there's been a movement of people going back to live in more rural uh, peripheral uh, areas where rents are uh, lower uh, where the price of life is lower uh, but where uh, the the living conditions have been made more and more complicated in the past uh, years because uh, of all the cuts in public expenses because of the of the closing of uh, railway stations, uh, of uh, transport, uh, all kinds of uh, public transport, uh, post offices, uh, hospitals, any any access to healthcare is, has been made more difficult in the past years in these uh, areas. Uh, schools, nurseries, uh, basically all kinds of public services have been more uh, difficult, have been made more difficult by the by the, the policies carried out by different governments in the past years. And this had added to the, the fact that those people have to, to travel a lot to go to work uh, and that the price of the fuel has been increasing. This makes the living conditions of the populations of this peripheral France more and more difficult to, uh, to sustain. I think we want to get on to talking about what those demands are because uh, last week there was uh, the protesters issued a list of 42 demands, which it might be worth exploring that in a little bit more depth. I just wanted to comment firstly just on the rural, the rural and the and the peripheral France aspect of the protests, which is at least to me this seems one of the first protests of the so-called left behinds about which there's been a lot of talk over the past two three years, uh, but which is a protest which started in the peripheries and the small towns. And that it hasn't taken an electoral form because one can trace uh, elements of that to, you know, the vote for Brexit, some of the element of the vote for Trump, even maybe some of the protest voting for Le Pen. Do you, do you think that's a feature of this, the fact that it actually started in these places rather than starting, you know, a big call for a protest in the center of a city? Well, I guess that's what makes the movement both quite unique and also Maybe that is one of the reasons why the movement has been looked with such uh, mistrust and such confusion by everybody in France, basically. The people, the large majority of the, of the population who live in uh, uh, large urban centers, the media, obviously, and the political class who, who 
probably to some extent are, are now completely disconnected to that part of France, that a part of France that has become uh, or that has probably always been quite invisible uh, in in the public debate, in the public sphere. And also, I guess also connected to the French history, there is this idea that any uh, sort of uh, popular uprising that comes from the rural areas is intrinsically uh, conservative and reactionary, mm. going back to the French Revolution. So this might be one of the reasons why uh, this this protest, this, this movement... Uh, well, first of all, no one saw it coming. Everybody, it took everybody by surprise. And it took so long for everybody, basically, to uh, try to understand it and try to uh, decide whether to support it or not. And still today, basically, uh, a lot of uh, people, including large uh, parts of the left, are still hesitating and are not sure whether to, to support that movement. Well, indeed. I mean, their demands are, according to a, a, some study done by Le Monde, two-thirds of the demands match up to the radical left of Mélenchon, for example. About ha- Just under half of them match up to the presidential campaigns of, of Le Pen or Dupont-Aignan in the last presidential election, and very little with the centre and the centre-right of Macron and Fillon. So there is a... It's ambiguous, it's very broad-based, but the bulk of the demands are around inequality and would tend, at least, towards the left. And yet the Gilets Jaunes seem to reject political parties. It's a rejection, perhaps even of representation. I mean, that, I guess I want to phrase that as a question. It's such a broad-based movement with pulling in so many demands as it seems to grow that uh, it doesn't seem to be immediately co-optable by existing political forces. To comment on this, you need to rewind a little bit and explain how the movement sort of uh, evolved from the start. So initially it was just this uh, quite spontaneous movement organized on social media about the increase of fuel prices. The movement uh, has then expanded from the 17th of November when there was almost 300,000 uh, people in uh, in the streets everywhere in France. The movement has been resisting and has been a very... Uh, very resilient, um, despite very, very strong repression that we have seen um, on TV, that we have seen both in Fran- in Paris and in the province. Um, and the, the movement continued to basically organize mainly on social media. People are talking and using these sort of like uh, Facebook uh, tools to sort of um, to sort of organize their their claims, their demands. They have elected last uh, last uh, week, uh, Monday last week, they decided to choose eight uh, sort of uh, national communicants. That's the word that was used. They're basically delegates that were supposed to establish a link with the government in order to bring the demands of the Gilets Jaunes to the government. Uh, then almost immediately, the, the you know the actual legitimacy, the, the representativity of the of these uh, eight people has been uh, very much uh, subject to discussions and very and, and uh, very a lot of tensions within the, the the movement internal to the movement. In fact, those uh, delegates they never really uh, met the, the 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 government. I mean, there was a 
some attempt, uh, some failed attempt for for a meeting. But um, actually, what happened is the, most of the delegates they they uh, they gave up and they renounced to meeting the government because they received apparently a lot of pressure from within the movement against establishing this sort of this kind of uh, of, uh, of contact with the government. Uh, and then in the meantime, uh, a series of uh, of claims have been formulated. Um, the the Gilets Jaunes have uh, released a number of documents. Uh, the most important of these documents was this, this sort of press release that was released uh, last Thursday and that was sent both to the government and to uh, French MPs, in which the Gilets Jaunes were basically establishing a list of 40 people's directives, that's the, 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 the express, expression they used, that were oh, clearly going much beyond fuel questions and even tax questions, and that were raising questions of, of equality, questions of uh, uh, implementing a much more progressive taxation system, implementing uh, rent controls, prohibiting uh, relocations and uh, posted workers, um, for uh, creating more open-ended contracts. So uh abolishing or sort of uh, impeding pre- precarious works abolishing the the CICO which is a, a sort of like tax cuts and uh tax exemption program that was transferring that is transferring billions and billions of euros each year to uh, to uh employers in, including big uh, multinational um, uh, companies in France there were other there were other claims for uh, investing in sustainable transport for uh, implementing a, a maximum salary uh, and also uh, claims about uh, uh, stopping immediately uh, this closing of rail lines uh, schools nurseries hospitals etc so as you said if you take take on as a while those 40 uh, people's directives they are closer to uh, directives for, uh, or to the program, if you if you if you wish, of uh, the France Insoumise or any any way of uh, demands of a left wing force than of anything that the that the, the Republicain, the, the the conservative right, or even the Rassemblement National uh, ever ever put forward. This said, it does not mean that we uh, can be sure, uh, as of now, that the movement is taking a left turn. Everything remains to to be seen. In fact, the Marine Le Pen, the leader of the Rassemblement National, the ex Front National, is actively trying to sort of surf on the wave of the movement. It remains largely unclear if she will manage to do this. A lot of sectors of the left, including uh, institutional parties like the France Insoumise, as you said, which was one of the first uh, important forces of the left to support the movement. A lot of the trade unions are now very much uh, organizing to support the movement. There is important forces on the left, on the anti-racist political left in France, such as the Comité uh, Justice pour Adama, that has uh, expressed their support for the movement. Uh, And so um, there is more and more a sense that an important part of the left uh, has become, become aware that there was something very important going on, something very important at stake, and it, that it was their responsibility to sort of be in that movement, to try and avoid that it would be sort of um, 
recuperated by by the extreme uh, right. And um, so to to go back to your question, the movement proclaimed itself as an apolitical movement from the start, which doesn't mean that they don't want people who are part of who are affiliated to parties or trade unions to be with them in the in the in the roadblocks or in the demonstrations. In fact, they have expressed the fact that they they are open and they want any anyone any force to who is willing to support them to come and to join them, but they just don't want anyone to appropriate the movement. Uh, they don't want anyone to sort of try to determine the movement. To Basically, uh, they don't accept uh, parties to come with, with, with their flags or their colors. They want everybody to wear the same uh, yellow uh, color. So it's not as clear that this movement is anti-political, in the sense that I think they do, they do reject um, mm. leadership, political leadership, uh, and I would—I'm not sure about this—but I would bet that uh, most yellow vests hate Marine Le Pen as much as they hate Macron and they hate Mélenchon, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the, the the breadth and the amplitude and even the acceleration of the movement has been really fascinating to observe. And I think we want to come back to some of these organizational questions and what they might mean going forward in a little bit. But I think first we should talk about Macron, which Ben wanted to come in on. When uh, Macron was elected a few years ago, uh, he portrayed, or a year ago, really, he portrayed himself as a sort of fresh, young modernizer, the new face of Europe, the new face of France, the sort of radical center and uh, at least I don't think quite in France, but he wasn't ever that popular, but at least in terms of uh, sort of the Anglosphere of liberals, he was seen as the great hope. But this specific moment seems to have catalyzed all the anti-Macron energy into these protests. Can you talk a bit about like Macron's standing right now? What's been going wrong with his presidency? Is he on the edge? What's where is his project going? So indeed, I think it was uh, almost exactly a year and a half ago that he took office and he did present himself initially as this modern president that was neither right nor left and that was just a progressive president against the extremes. And the reason, well, one of the reasons he was elected uh, is that he presented himself in the second round of the elections as uh, the antidote to the extreme of uh, Marine Le Pen. I think it came across. I mean, it, it became clear quite quickly after he after he took office that this was a massive fraud. That the neither left or right was actually completely extreme center right, <laughs> and um, and in general, even for people who don't refer to these categories anymore of left and right. The, the result of the policies, the policy that Macron has been, uh, that has been implementing, that he was already implementing in, in the previous government that he was part of, uh, the result of these uh, neoliberal policies basically has been rising poverty, <laughs> decreasing incomes uh, in, the, in the popular classes and in the middle classes. Increasing difficulty to 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 make it to the end of the month in 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 a in a larger and larger uh, strands of the population because when you when you listen to uh, every single day you you turn on the radio and you listen to the the testimonies of the people in, in the street what most of them just say is uh, 
after the 15th of the, the month, I, can't, mm-hmm. I don't have food in my fridge anymore. I have two kids and I have to ask my mother, who's a, who's a retiree and who is herself on social benefits, to give me money to feed my, my, my kids. I mean, there is little mystery on, on, on what's going on and who's speaking. And I think it has become very clear quite quickly that Macron was the president of the rich. And that's really the image that has been... Uh, coming out in, in the following months after he was elected, that he was the president of the rich, that he was uh, very arrogant. He's been saying, um, he's been making a, a few statements, different statements that really showed his, his class contempt, uh, for, uh, for his own people, which I think is probably one of the main, uh, difference between Macron and his predecessors, because probably, uh, Hollande and Sarkozy were carrying basically the same policies as he did, um, where, but they were at least pretending uh, still to mm-hmm. to be connected to their people and to respect their people. Whereas Macron, the young president that was presenting himself as the president that spoke really frankly, what he was doing basically was showing his arrogance and his contempt for the people. And that was really... One of the reasons, one of these uh, strokes that broke the camel's back, basically, because people realized th- that um, the government and the president were not in any way connected to their reality. And it's interesting that that arrogance of Macron of just basically ignoring the people, it makes the symbolic force of the yellow vest all that more evocative because it does seem to be saying, pay attention to us. Uh, we have all these disgruntlement, all these demands, mm. all these frustrations, which are all being kind of compiled in a sort, almost sort of ad hoc fashion or, or on the go. Uh, you know, the, the plane is being built as it's flown. But uh, but it but it does seem to really strike at Macron's arrogance. That's the, the, mo- the main unifying force. And yet it seems also yeah. that this is in some ways a, a rejection of neoliberalism. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this in, in terms of the context of the past 20 years of, of French history. I think neoliberalism in France has come in in a much more drip feed fashion, I think, compared to, for example, what happened in the UK. And part of the reason, I guess, is that there have been a sequence of mobilizations against it by different sectors here and there. So neoliberalism has come in uh, a bit more slowly. Uh, would you agree with that characterization? Yes, I guess. Although uh, I think in the past years, and especially since the crisis, we have seen a number of reforms, privatizations, uh, tax cuts, uh, a series of uh, uh, policy sets that can very well characterize as um, as uh, neoliberal policies, and that were implemented both by the quote unquote uh, left of the Parti Socialiste during Hollande's uh, presidency. Uh, and by Macron now and by Sarkozy and Chirac before them. And uh, I think it is true that in France we did see a possibility, like a capacity for mobilization that was perhaps uh, stronger than in other countries, even just in the past two years, at the end of Hollande's uh, presidency and and at uh, the beginning of uh, Macron's presidency, there's been mass move, protest movements and uh, mobilization in France. Uh, two years ago, against the labor law that Hollande was passing, that was basically dismantling the labor uh, rights of the of the workers in France. Uh, there's been a huge movement that lasted for months that beca- became very. Uh, 
uh, massive, but very violent as well. That came at the same time as this uh, Nuit Debout movement, which was also a very new uh, type of movement for France. I mean, it was sort of similar to some things that had been seen in New York with Occupy Wall Street or in uh, Spain with the uh, Indignados uh, movement. But in France, it was the first time that that happened and it lasted for over three months until the summer came and then the whole movement basically sort of uh, died. Just for a clarification, how would you compare Nuit Debout to the Gilets Jaunes? I mean, was it younger, perhaps more urban? Can you um, before before you go into that, you have mm-hmm. to expand for uh, non-Francophile readers what that what you specifically <laughs> talking about these protests. So the Nuit Debout, uh, yeah, so up all night movement was a movement that was started. Um, uh, in March 2016, if I remember well, uh, at the beginning of this uh, sort of like citizen and workers movement against the reform of the labor law that Hollande was uh, was uh, pushing. And basically it was encouraged by a number of um, intellectual figures from the left who uh, organized this occupation of the main square in Paris, La Place de la République, which is a very symbolic um, uh, square for for France and for in, in French Republican history. And uh, the idea was that we were going to occupy that square and to stay all night uh, uh, until, basically until this... Um, uh, the the law would be uh, would be dropped by the government, but then it became a much wider movement, a very interesting movement where people were trying to keep the square every night. Maybe they were they were um, they were evacuated by the police, but they would come back every morning and build all sorts of committees about different uh, uh, about different teams, trying to sort of organize a new sort of uh, of um, of democracy from below, basically. But it's interesting that th- that uh, the Gilets Jaunes seems to be much more broad-based and brought in larger sections of the working class than Nuit Debout did. Yes, so that's the thing. The Nuit Debout was very much an urban... It wasn't only Parisian. It happened in other large cities. I think it happened in Marseille, probably in Lyon, Toulouse, Bordeaux. But, um, but it was very much intellectual, uh, middle class, mm-hmm. a lot of teachers, students... Um, people who worked in uh, in public in the in the public sector, uh, I mean as officials and uh, educators. Uh, whereas the Gilets Jaunes today are a completely different, uh, a completely different um, composition yeah. of the movement. They're much more um, workers, uh, both like dif- they have different uh, profiles. There, there are precarious workers, part-time workers, people who are retirees. Um, Young, younger, younger, and older workers, unemployed people who have been in, inactive for many years, but also small businessmen, as we mentioned before. So um, it's a very different uh, composition of the movement than used the used to be. Uh, the question is whether today it will be possible to make those two. Uh, strands of the French movement meet on on common on common uh, claims, and because at the end of the day, as I I, I was trying to to explain at the beginning, uh, it is the same thing that uh, that those different movements that have been um, that have been uh, popping in France in the past years are fighting against. It's basically those 
those neoliberal policies that the different governments have been implementing in, in the, at least the, okay. ten, the past 10 years. But I just, uh, just want to come in here again. So I think one of the things that's been very apparent, and I've been trawling through the um, at least Anglophone coverage of these protests over the last few days, is kind of this uh, sentiment among from sort of establishment voices. Uh, the one, I cannot pronounce her surname, but she is the Guardian's main columnist on France. She's a former Le Monde editor, so she's a sort of, and her entire take on this is that Macron represents a European renaissance that all people who believe in democracy have to defend against the sort of barbarous movement that is uh, just this unrefined anger, the politics of anger that gives rise to populism. And I think that take has been repeated in the US as well. And there's sort of this urge to see that any sort of spontaneous anger is just populism and is some sort of uh, disease that's spreading that makes us like Brexit or Trump's vote or Bolsonaro's vote. So um, is there a sense that, uh, how is the sort of like center voices behind Macron uh, responding to this? Is there a, a sort of mainstream media section behind Macron? And or is there more divisions about this protest and the media coverage there? Yeah, so, and it's the same thing that has been happening in uh, in Italy as well. I mean, uh, generally the the center, um, the neoliberal bloc uh, has been presenting itself increasingly as the solution, the progressive solution against uh, the sort of nationalist, uh, extreme, uh, extreme populists from both uh, right and and left, and this is uh, obviously a very uh, a very twisted and a very dangerous um, putting things, uh, in, in my opinion. Right now, the reaction has been quite diverse in, in French, uh, in, in the French um, political uh, class and in the media. Basically, initially, all the oppos- all the oppositions were were uh, sort of. <laughs> using uh, sort of trying to to uh instrumentalize this movement to uh, uh raise their their attacks ag- uh, against uh, Macron whereas uh the government and the the majority the la république um, en marche uh were standing uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, Macron but uh very quickly basically it appeared that even within the majority so even within uh Macron's um, own uh, movement party uh there was a lot of divisions appearing on the on the gilets jaunes because in the first phase until uh, basically 2 days ago Macron was uh was determined to uh, to insist on his uh, on his reforms, what he was saying is that oh yes, um, he, he or mainly his uh, spokesperson would repeat that they hear the the despair of the people, but that they wouldn't be able to change uh, policy because this was the right thing to do to bring France to a modern uh, era of the wonderful uh, start startup nation that we're building thanks to Macron. So um so initially that w- that was uh, that was the line but uh, many people even in the in Ma- Macron's party started to think well we maybe we should listen a little bit more maybe we should consider this uh, maybe uh, suspending that uh, that new carbon tax maybe we should consider actually um reestablishing the solidarity wealth tax that Macron suppressed when he uh, took office maybe we need to consider raising the minimum salary in France so 
Um, right now, actually, the, the the president's majority is very is very divided. Even the media, I mean, the, the main uh, the main media outlet, um, seem to have adopted a view that uh, probably the government needs to wake up, uh, and that probably we have like it has been almost uh, three weeks now since the movement has started. Uh, the, the government's reaction has clearly been um, inadapted <laughs> because the movement hasn't has been uh, increasing in in, uh, in in size and in violence. And so uh, the me, I think the, the I think Macron and I think actually the government is in a very 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 difficult position right now uh, because they have been losing consent even within their own uh, their own uh, camp. The situation seems remarkably open only 18 months into Macron's presidency and I think the next steps for uh, for the Gilets Jaunes they're going to have another demonstration this Saturday the following Saturday I think the CGT the, the trade union confederation has called its members out as that's my understanding so it seems to be yes. its plans to continue going and continue growing uh, so I guess as a way of concluding this where do you see this going? What happens next? Do you think Macron's government is under threat? Do you think even because I think this has been mooted uh, by by Mélenchon, for example, to uh, establish the sixth French Republic, that the fifth Republic might be even under threat by this? Um, it's very difficult to answer this question. As I, as I said at the beginning, every day there is a new uh, series of surprises, of uh, announcements that may that make it very difficult to have an analysis and to sort of foresee what's going to happen. Right now, uh, I think Saturday is going to be decisive. What is going to happen uh, Saturday uh, will probably determine the, 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 the following of the movement. Because uh, on one side, the government has started since yesterday to sort of give up uh, a number of uh, a number of uh, of uh, reforms and of uh, and of uh, measure, measures that they had announced. They announced that they would sp- suspend this uh, carbon tax. Now they are announcing that they will start um, a consultation, a wide consultation about the the solidarity wealth tax. Uh, they are not doing a U-turn because those uh, those uh, things that they are giving up are actually very small and and only temporary uh, uh, concessions and I and it's very unclear if the movement that has radicalized a lot and that has much wider uh, demands by now it's very unclear if the how the movement is going to respond it's very unclear uh, if they are going to listen to uh, the uh, interior minister and the government who are calling everybody basically right now to not take uh, to the streets on Saturday and who are uh, already um, announcing that there will be even more police forces in in Paris next Saturday than there was uh, last Saturday, which was already which has seen levels of repression that we haven't seen in France uh, in many many years. It was it was at the insurrection and the, mm. the level of repression what last Saturday was very scary for many people. Um, so right now the, the trade unions have started to show increasing support. Uh, both the CGT and FO, which are 
two of the main uh, unions, at least the transport sections of these uh, unions, have announced that as of uh, uh, Sunday, they were starting an unlimited strike. Uh, another branch of the CGT, the public services of the CGT, has announced it would start on Saturday, a 22-day strike. Tomorrow morning, there is a meeting between the, f- the, the leaders of the five main confederal uh, trade unions and other uh, gra- rank-and-file <laughs> grassroots trade unions that, that are going to meet as well and decide what to do. And this is this is something that hasn't happened in many years, I think probably since the start of the 2008 crisis, um, that uh, all the, the trade unions are meeting t- in order to decide whether to uh, adopt joint um, decisions, measures. So anything could happen in the, in the next uh, days. It's very, it's very unclear. Hopefully, what my hope is that the left will be able to to organize, to be with the movement, to be in the in the squares, on the streets, uh, with and with the with the yellow vest, with the gilet jaune, in order to take their responsibility to try and uh, help help that uh, movement to go towards a progressive um, and anti-racist uh, direction. Well, it's a fascinating and very dynamic situation and we're all watching. You've been great. That was fascinating, Aurélie. Thank you for talking to us. And we'll have to have you back on if and when this uh, continues going forward. So right now, Ben and I are going to discuss some of the more generalizable themes about these sorts of protests that have emerged basically everywhere in the decade since the 2008 crisis. But before that, I just wanted to welcome all our new listeners. If you like these sorts of discussions on the crises of our times, we do a lot of this stuff. So please subscribe, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and tell your friends. Lots of you have also been getting in touch, suggesting topics that need to be covered. Stuff like the legacy of postmodernism, and whether there's anything to be salvaged from it, or the Nigerian elections coming up in February. We'll be doing both in the new year. So do get in touch, even if you just want to say that we're ignorant morons and why haven't we covered the shit that's going down in Ruritania or the hot new social theory that explains fucking everything. Get in touch. We'd like to hear from you. So, Ben, Macron on the guillotine. Pretty exciting, huh? Well, I can only hope. Uh, we need some sort of big victory and seeing that smug bastard's face when he realizes the game is up would be beautiful. But uh, to change the subject slightly from, uh, you know, cathartic fantasies uh it's basically I, I think one of the things that you said on this uh on i think it was on twitter or facebook or both probably uh about the uh the way that the left approaches protests is uh really important here and you said it's basically for the contemporary political moment protests are either nuremberg meaning uh leading to the extreme far right or bastille in terms of the you know the storming of the of the winter palace the leftist insurrection so it's either a pure movement or it's a purely evil movement and i think what we've seen now is that there's sort of two tendencies on the left there's the sort of remnants of the left who saw pretty much every grouping of people on the streets regardless of what they were saying as democracy as this is how politics is built and that comes from the anti-globalization movement it comes from occupy and that's still there and then you also have the sort of reactive left that sees uh, the far right everywhere, even when it's not necessarily there. And that's not to say the far right isn't growing in strength, but it's like everything will naturally lead to them. It's a sort of feeling of powerlessness. So once that, what you have on one side, you have this reaction, which is basically exaggerating our own powers or exaggerating the force of street protests without uh, political organization. 
and the other which is like doing it in the other way in the sense that everything is creeping towards inevitable fascism. But in, rea in reality, and this is where I'll shut up, uh, politics is a contested space. And I think as we're seeing in France, and we've seen elsewhere, this is a contest between different forces. And because people in many cases are often have reactionary ideas, uh, we have to deal with that as a political reality. And this is part of what makes this case so interesting. Yeah, I think we have to deal with the ambiguity of the moment. And the Gilets Jaunes does express the ambiguity of the political moment, where the political left and its traditional organizations are historically weak. Uh, there is a you know neoliberal center, which is completely aloof. And then you've got a right, which is very opportunistic, and which in some ways, in many cases, have been able to absorb the energy of these broad, inchoate popular protests because they're basically unprincipled. So they'll take on basically anything and will push these protests rightwards. I mean, you know, we've talked about June 2013 in Brazil before and what happened with that. Uh, but there's a number of other cases of this sort of broad-based protest, which either tend to be co-opted by the right or will just evaporate because they don't end up coming up with a determinate political and organizational form to carry through those demands. Uh, and I guess that that sort of left attitude that you described, which, you know, is a legacy of the anti-globalization movement that just has fantasies of insurrection, but without actually building concrete politics, uh, lends itself always to that very evanescent insurrectionary moment. Uh, and that's and that's really problematic. I, you know, as you said, you know, the the, the ten the view from outside has tended to either say that this is the great insurrection moment, it's going to be revolution, and look at it relatively uncritically, or be deeply suspicious. And I think it would be absolutely wrong to, for your first, uh, for your initial reaction to this, would, to be suspicion, because it's unmistakably, as Aurélie put it, it's unmistakably a movement of the people and from below. So to not be at least initially sympathetic to that would be a very wrong first step. I mean, there's two things to say here. I think in, in terms of the, again, this is a scenario that I would not claim any expertise on. So if there's any Korean listeners, feel free to come correct us in a podcast on this because it's super interesting. Uh, in terms of the examples of something that didn't take a reactionary direction, uh, remember those mass protests against the South Korean president that ended up in her downfall uh, in terms mm. of after a corruption scandal. Those didn't take a reactionary direction. Why? Because the South Korean working class is not broken. It's one of the strongest trade union movements in the world. And it came in and put order, discipline and direction, provided a clear, clear political line that channeled this energy, which can often go in reactionary directions, in a direction that saw a more progressive outcome. But I think as we see in uh, France, we see in Brazil, there's no institutions that have that sort of capacity of providing that order right now. That's part of what the crisis of the left is. It's like, who are we articulating ourselves as? Are we articulating ourselves as like this party sent by Mill and Sean, as a trade union movement? Who is the force capable of providing that direction? And you clearly see that as a problem. And I also think uh, there's one more point to make, and this is where I'm very suspicious. And I think this is part of what I've been writing about, why the right is so successful at capturing these things. It's not just that they're more opportunistic. It's that there's no symbols of representation. Is the right does a much better job uh, of say of using no representation as a form of representation in essence like there's no flag but my country is something the right has managed to do for a variety of reasons it's something that I think tends to favor the right on the left on the other hand I think in essence as much as we talk about uh, 
direct democracy has to believe in some some idea of representation if we believe in popular projects and i think that contestation is the right cynically manipulating it or being able to harness these symbols on the left uh struggling to escape its fact that it's actually invested in idea of representation is something we see at the fore of these conflicts yeah that's right because you have what you have with these protests is the people suddenly jumping on to the national scene and the right is able to co-opt that or to circumscribe the people as the national people or white people or French people rather than a more universal sense. And so the left has a, a, a kind of a harder sell on, on that regard. And the, the point you made about representation is really right as well, because there's a contradiction in these in these demands. I mean, if you look at the list of 42 demands that the Gilets Jaunes have put out, it's a combination of they do not represent us and we want the government to do X, Y, and Z. So it's partly, you know, state resisting as well as state engaging forms of protest. And that's sort of the ambiguity as well, which would need to be resolved over the course of sort of internal debate within within the movement. And that also needs to take place in a specific place and, and have a have a determinate kind of de- democratic forms and processes uh, rather than just kind of, you know, putting ad hoc discussions on Facebook, which I think is one of the reasons why these sorts of protests are able to explode and gather speed and size so quickly. But it also means that they're limited in terms of actually seeing through any political objectives. I think uh, I want to end our wonderful podcast with a uh, polemic and a personal tangent against what remains of the horizontalist left. For so long, people were attacked and they continue to be attacked by uh, the remnants of uh, the autonomous, the anarcho-liberals or the anarchists for arguing in representation. There's this idea in deliberative democracy, in this idea that democracy uh, is without parties, it's the people directly speaking, it's that spirit of the street. And it's simply a fucking farce. This, these arguments have failed again and again to prove uh, as strategies to resist the far right or even win victories. In the end, what they leave, they lead to is an aesthetic politics in which the form of the protest, the form of the meeting, replaces any substantive political content. And we, can, we will see this again and again, that when we're attacked for arguing for representation, because we believe, for instance, that people don't want to spend their whole time in meetings to decide their future, uh, we, will, um, we have to refer back to the fact that the strategies the horizontalist left in terms of resisting the far right uh, and ha- has failed again and again, and they have been unable to provide a substantial political alternative. And if the left continues indulging in these fantasies, we'll be in for even a rougher time. Very interesting. So I'm personally fascinated to continue observing it, and we can hopefully have Oheli back on uh, in a little bit's time to discuss what has happened and maybe why Macron fell. All right, that's it for today. Uh, We are back with our end of year review uh, towards the end of the month. Catch you later. Bye-bye.